Freedom Hut. What is the great COVID reset that's being planned? 2,600 new votes just turned up in Georgia. Joe Biden founded a fake cancer charity and California's plan to determine the election in Georgia. This is the Buck Sexton Show, where the mission mission is to decode what really matters with actionable intelligence. Make no mistake. America, you're a great American again. The Buck Sexton Show begins. Former CIA analyst. Former member of the NYPD. He's a great guy. It is Buck Sexton. Now. Welcome, friends, to the Buck Sexton Show. Thank you so much for being here. Another busy day. On the front lines of freedom, another day in which we must hold the line. I think we're all starting to pick up on something. The warnings that people like me have been giving you for many months now about how even after a vaccine, they're not giving up all this emergency health authority. No, no, quite the opposite. That's now becoming apparent even to skeptics of those earlier warnings. We now have Dr. Fauci, who is honestly a disastrous, a disastrous statist bureaucrat and and an imbecile on policy. I don't care how much he knows about medicine. He's a moron when it comes to national public health policy. He's now saying that we're probably heading for the most severe restrictions. Stay at home orders. The government telling you you cannot leave the place where you live except under very narrowly defined circumstances. You cannot gather with other people. You cannot go to businesses other than those necessary to feed yourself and perhaps to get medical attention or supplies. That's what we're heading for. And I have so many questions. Like, why are we heading for that when we've been masking up for months and months now? Why are we heading for that with all of our social distancing and mitigation? Oh, that's right. Because we didn't do it well enough, they tell us. It's not that that stuff does not work. It does not change the trajectory of the virus once it infects a community. Not over the long term. No, it can't be that. It has to be that we we aren't listening enough, you see. That's the problem. This is a mindset that you do often come across in countries where there is no voice of the people in government. This this is a mindset that you will you will hear in places where the answer from the government to why should we do that is just a version of because I said so. That's where we are now. Because I said so. You can't open your business. If you do, we'll fine you. If you're a restaurant, we'll take your liquor license or we'll just shut you down entirely. We'll ruin you. Based on what? You're a health risk. Ah, yes, a health risk, say the people who keep breaking the very quarantine rules they want to inflict upon the rest of us. Hypocrisy, increasingly, as you are seeing, is the point. But ultimately, this is about showing everybody, now that we've all been sufficiently terrified by the media, now that they may have managed to use this to take what should have been an easy reelection for Donald Trump away from him. I know the fight is still ongoing, friends, but let's be honest. This is not looking great. They used COVID for that purpose, but there's a much bigger purpose behind it, too. The policies around it, the mentality here. And you're starting to see how it all comes together. Joe Biden 
talks about build back better. That's the slogan. That's the phrase. Why isn't it just return to normal life? Isn't that what we all want? We just want our freedoms back. We just want the world that was taken away from us under the guise of bureaucrats saving all of our lives. What lives did they save here? What did they actually do? What did they accomplish? There's no accounting for that. And if you point out the horrific mistakes in the early days from the public health experts, they say everybody makes mistakes, but listen to us now or else. They don't see the problem with that. They don't see how that doesn't sit well with a whole lot of us. And then that brings me to this Build Back Better plan. A crisis is an opportunity. We all know this. The Obama administration made that clear. But in general, people who believe in the plan, meaning that really smart folks will gather together and make decisions for everybody else, also known as central planning, also known as the beating heart of Marxism and socialism. People that really believe in the plan know that the best time to implement it is when everyone is scared, when things have gone poorly for other reasons or, or things that are even out of the state's control, as we see in this case. Although we've made it worse with these lockdowns, I think that's apparent at this, at this phase. Notice that they don't even try to explain why we're having more cases than ever before. It's spreading all over the country and mass compliance is at its all time high. They see no dissonance here. They see no problem whatsoever. They've created a perception. Smart people wear masks. That's what they've done. Right. Like the sheep in George Orwell's animal farm. Four legs good, two legs bad. Remember, you've all read it. Wear a mask, Cuomo yells at you. All the politicians yell this. Wear a mask. Joe Biden, where is your mask? I'm wearing a mask. I wear two masks now, Joe Biden says. And I'm not kidding. He said it yesterday. Now, it's not enough. The virtue signaling thrill is not enough from a single cloth placed across your face. You got to double up on that cloth. To that, I say, oh, yeah, Joe Biden, I'm going to start wearing three masks. Triple mask is where it's at. These people are buffoons but they're dangerous. They don't think for themselves, but they still want to make you do their bidding. It's all about the collective, and it's all about that plan that I was telling you about before. And you're seeing this on a broader scale. Otherwise, how, how can you explain that now when Boris Johnson gives a speech, the prime minister of the UK, build back better is behind him. In Canada, at the Institute this was all, all shared by uh, Professor Weinstein on his Twitter account. Build Back Better in Canada, the Institute for European Environmental Policy, the OECD, tackling coronavirus, contributing to a global effort, building back better. Prime Minister Imran Khan uh, having a, a spokesperson in Pakistan, stand in front of a sign that says, build back better. Starting to see this. UK, Canada, international organizations, the OECD. I mean, we're talking, folks, grade A1 globalists here. This is a term we're going to have to start using more. We've used it in the past, but now we're seeing with the possibility of a Trump exit from the world stage, the globalists want to come rushing back in. 
Why do we not like what the globalists want for us? What's the problem with it? Central planning for nation states results in failure, results in the destruction of freedom, of individual choice, and therefore of a degree of individual, individual identity, autonomy. They start to chip away at your very soul. We're not machines. We don't exist to do what other people in far-off offices tell us to do. There should only be the most universally applicable standards and guidelines set, contracts enforced, and that's it. We're supposed to be able to make other choices for ourselves. And as we know, and the founders certainly understood this, which is why we have federal, state, and local levels, which is why we have the House of Representatives, which is why we have a Senate, which is why we have a separate judiciary, that you don't want the consolidation of power in very few hands because it results in tyranny as well as bad decision-making. There is no one person, there is no one entity Unless all of a sudden we have a return of the Messiah that is in a position to tell everybody what to do, what's best and what's right, without catastrophically bad outcomes. So if you look at central planning, if you look at collectivism as it plays out in a nation state, now imagine you're magnifying that out all over the world. One world policy? You could have one world principles, but what does a one world policy look like, right? And they always start with the one and then try to move to the other. And we see that it's a failure. They're unable to do it, but that never stops them. They keep wanting to assert their will. They keep wanting to tell you what to do, whether it's about energy, whether it's about our own elections, international monitors looking at what we're doing. Any number of issues where the U.N., international consensus, global opinion are supposed to influence us. I always think it's it's hilarious when journalists will show what the opinion is of some European country or European countries about our election. I'm pretty sure we won a revolution starting in 1776, so we could not give a crap what the Brits or the French or the Germans or anybody else. And we had to win a few wars against the Germans for that right, too. Or anybody else thinks about our politicians. In fact, I'm, I'm quite certain of it. I think my history is sound here. I don't care at all. But build back better as a global rallying cry with COVID should make you very ill at ease. We just want them to stop what they are doing because they are not helping. And what they are telling you is, oh, you're going to get more of this and you're going to get a whole lot more of other stuff that we're planning. A lot of it doesn't even have to do with COVID. This is out of the Saul Alinsky playbook in Rules for Radicals as well. Just get a group, get a population, get people mobilized around one issue, and then you have a mobilized group that you can use for any other issue. Get people fearful and obedient. Get them to bend the knee on COVID-19 lockdowns, which is what they're about to do again. And then it becomes so much easier to tell them we're also going to do the following for your benefit. You listened to us on COVID and we kept you safe, even though they didn't and they made things worse. This is the plan. Described accurately. They would tell you that the plan, the centrally planned effort 
of a would-be incoming Biden administration and all of the international institutions and globalists that it will lean on in order to erode your rights and your autonomy. They will tell you that this is going to make everything so, so much better. They're going to improve everything in your life. They're telling you that as they're making your life more miserable and more difficult. So why should you listen to them? Ultimately, this rests on coercion. That's the problem with the leftist approach, with the collectivist approach. These are arguments that should be settled through an established process of people voting and also taking actions that are within the scope of a constitution that is written in plain language that we can all understand. But they seek to subvert all of that. They either say the constitution doesn't matter. It's an old document written by people that we shouldn't listen to anymore. Or they say that elections only count when they win. Or they say that our election doesn't even really matter all that much as long as we have people in charge who will take orders and be a part of this globalist collective. Then everything is going to get so much better for us here. We are heading into a miserable, cold winter of moronic Democrat policies with covid where they're just going to become even more unhinged and enraged, they will continue, I can assure you, to blame Trump and Trump supporters all the way through January, all the way through the, no matter who's in charge in this country, through the end of the winter, because otherwise they'd have to turn around and realize that they're just not that smart, and they've been swindled, they've been fooled, and no one likes that feeling. That Fauci isn't some saint that we should all we should all elevate as the great hero of the COVID-19 pandemic. No, this guy should be thought of as somebody deserving of scorn. I mean, he's he's truly failed in his charge here. At a minimum, he should have the humility to say, I've been wrong on key stuff. I don't really know what to do anymore. Somebody else should step up and be advising you guys. My policy declarations are absurd. They're idiotic. We're going to have people masking up after the vaccine. We're going to have people continue to do this once there's no real epidemiological basis for them to be worried about the risk. It's long since past the time when he should have stepped aside, but now you're seeing it. Of course, he's not going to step aside. Of course, the people that have been screaming at you to wear a cloth mask loosely fitted around your face sometimes usually in in public so you can show what a great democrat you are or because you don't want people to spit at you and yell at you and scream at you because you're one of the bad people that's even though there's a 99 percent chance you're just a healthy person walking around living your life you're treated like some kind of vector of the plague it's really not about this in the end It's about the massive shift in our mentality, the way that we have let our liberties slip through our fingers with barely a peep of protest. And they see an opening here. It's not just about the great reset. It's a remaking of society. We've been conditioned now to do whatever the government tells us about some of the most personal, intimate aspects of our lives. Who you spend the holidays with? The government and its bureaucrats thinks that it has that mandate now. This is a power that the Obamaite socialists of a few years ago could have barely dreamed of. And now the Biden acolytes 
are all getting ready to implement this, the, the, the Build Back Better plan, also known as the eradicate your freedom, your liberty, and the constitutional protections that have been around for a couple of hundred years plan. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Do a risk-benefit discussion with your family about what you're going to want to do with the holidays. In other words, you might say, you know, I have vulnerable people in the family. I have elderly people. I have people with underlying conditions. Do I want to get 10, 15, 20 people flying in from different parts of the country? That's a wonderful, beautiful tradition that we have, Jim. But maybe the time now is to take an assessment of that risk-benefit ratio and maybe modify what you're going to do from now. And the scientific thing is that there is light at the end of the tunnel help is on the way so a vaccine should not have you then make a decision well we're going to have a vaccine so we don't have to do anything else no the fact that we have a vaccine coming means we should double down and hang in there because help is on the way oh wait now we can have risk discussions among ourselves because because governor cuomo in new york and governor newsom in california among others have set limits on how many people can gather in your home. They've decided this is a matter of law. This is a matter of state coercion. Now the Fouch, Dr. Fauci, you know, help is on the way. The cavalry's coming. And oh, but notice that I think they've shown us a little too much of who they are, especially with this talk of mask up after the vaccine. I'm sorry. What was that? The moron just said. All aspects of this should be left up to individuals, private businesses, private establishments. What are we willing to do and what decisions are we going to make? But it has not been that way. Businesses require masks overwhelmingly because state mandates tell them to require masks. Businesses shut down because people are told they have to. This has not been about choice or freedom. Oh, but now they say we can start to talk about risks, huh? Thanks for listening to the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. What the hell are you doing here? Yeah, it could be their last Thanksgiving. If you expose them to people who aren't wearing masks, who aren't socially distancing, and haven't been doing so, and haven't gotten tested, because they somehow think they don't want to get in on the con of COVID. You know, you want to hide on state news, you do it. But someday you're going to have to deal with real questions and either you're going to come on a show or you're going to do it. But you know what? We may go back to old school and maybe the questions will come find you. Maybe when you're living your life nice and easy because you don't have the concerns that these same people that you're telling to rise up that they have. Maybe the questions will come and find you because you have to answer for that kind of guidance, let alone as a doctor. Do no harm. Invite grandma. This could be her last Thanksgiving. Yeah, if you invite her to a place where she can get sick and die. Almost like Bro Cuomo over at CNN is threatening, is threatening uh, Dr. Scott Atlas here with at least ambush questions outside of his home or something, right? Because he says, enjoy your Thanksgiving. Dr. Fauci said, have a talk about the risks. Dr. Atlas says, see your grandparents. Don't, don't be crazy. Like nothing is perfect and you could end up, you know, does Cuomo ever look at the at the data that shows that a vast majority of the people who are dying from covid 
are at high risk of dying from any number of other natural causes imminently over people in their 80s. Almost half of the people who have died of covid in the last month or so are people who are in or above their 80s. Now, that's not to say that I know I, I hate that we have to say this. Every life is precious. You know, I still remember I still get very sad when I think about the loss of all four of my grandparents. Um, but I wouldn't have told them stay in your nursing home for which they weren't in nursing homes. But regardless, I wouldn't have said, you know, stay alone in your home. Don't see anyone. You're 84. We can't let you see anyone for the next 18 months, maybe the next two years. Sorry, it's not safe. Stay home alone. How about that? Is that the life that Governor Cuomo and his idiot brother over at CNN want for everybody? Because that's the life that they're insisting that we all have. Can't see your grandparents. Can't actually take any of these risks. Trump had COVID, was fine in three days. Life's not perfect. Some people get this and they die. Very few as a percentage. And yet we have all of society being told to be in this panic over this. Don't have Thanksgiving. Don't have Christmas. Don't see people. Don't live your lives. Yeah, if you're sick, if I had the flu five years ago, okay, I would not have gone to my family Thanksgiving. If you're sick, clearly stay away from people. But what they're talking about are the risks of asymptomatic transmission among people in a family and then the risk of somebody in the family getting it and actually dying from it as a result. There are a lot of folks out there who are going to look at that and if they understand the real numbers, the real data and say, OK, we're, we're just going to we're going to live our lives. We're going to do this. We're going to see each other. We're willing to do that anyway. Knowing. In any given year, you could have showed up at Thanksgiving and given grandma the flu and she could have died from that. That has been true. And people say, oh, you would know that's not true because the flu is is at least 24 hours before you show symptoms. You can spread it, which is one of the reasons why the flu does spread widely. So that could have happened in any given year. But do you live your life based on that fear? And let's also remember that covid treatment has gotten substantially better which means the risk now is considerably less even for those at high risk than it was back in April and May and March of this past year. And there's a, there are vaccines coming on the horizon, which I know doesn't change your risk calculation for right now, but it does mean that we are making real scientific progress against this actual science. I thought I thought wear a mask was all you had to do. Wearing a mask was going to stop this thing cold in its tracks. That's what we were told for months and months and months. You mean that didn't work? Oh, we didn't wear masks enough. They'll tell us that's bull. That's nonsense. But they're not going to change because there's so much behind this. Isn't it fun for them to be able to go around and lecture everybody? Don't they get some some joy out of being the heroes here that stand up for science? We believe the science wear a mask cuomo says right okay we've been doing that have they been doing that have they been social distancing have some of the very people who are making decisions about using the force of the state to make you do things right now because of covid risk have they I'm just I'm wondering I'm really ask, I'm really asking have they been 
setting a good example. The mayor of Chicago, remember, Lori Lightfoot, uh, somebody who is deeply unimpressive. That's fair to say. True of many mayors, right? I mean, she's probably a better mayor than de Blasio because she at least got upset when there was widespread looting of the downtown high end shopping district in Chicago. She realized that's a bad look for her city and she was actually kind of upset about it. So I guess she's not completely insane. Whereas de Blasio views it a little bit of, you know, settling the score for social justice. Got to have some looting and rioting sometimes. You know, it's just the the price the hardworking people of New York City have to pay for the left wing lunatics in their midst. But Lori Lightfoot, she she got the haircut when we couldn't get haircuts. Remember that? And then when asked about it, it's because she has to look good for her city. That was her answer. Um, Lori Lightfoot was out there with the big Biden protests on the streets. We had this big we had the surge of cases this week. And we're being told to change all of these aspects of our lives. You know, no thanks. They just canceled Thanksgiving parade, the Thanksgiving parade in Houston. First time that's happened in over 70 years ever since they've been doing the parade. So they're canceling parades. And I look, I, I don't like I'm not a parade person, but I think people should I think parades could can they could certainly do the parade and just tell people, you know, don't gather in large numbers on the they could still have the parade and people could watch from a distance or not. You know, they, there are ways they could do this, but no. I mean, in general, I'm just an anti parade guy, unless it's a military veterans parade. And especially if there's drums and or bank uh, bagpipes involved, then it's cool. Other parades, I'm, I'm just not into. I just don't care. But here's Lori Lightfoot talking about how the Biden celebration going on there on the streets when they called the uh, the media called the victory for Joe Biden. How, yeah, she was out there without a mask and she was in crowds and there were a lot of people gathered and yelling and everything else. But, you know, no big deal. Sixteen. We've been saying all along, everybody has to take care. Everybody has to take precaution. I will tell you, in that big crowd a week ago, we had everybody was wearing masks. Look, at you can see the shot here. Um, mask compliance in our city is actually up very, very high. But yes, there are times when we actually do need to have a relief and come together. And I felt like that was one of those times. That crowd was gathered whether I was there or not. But this has been a super hard year on everyone. Everyone feels traumatized. They feel um, threatened, their safety, um, and they don't know what tomorrow's going to bring. And with this new surge in cases, we have just got to step up and do the right thing. And I think people understand that. Back in the spring, when we issued these blanket stay-at-home orders, it was because we really didn't understand where the risk was. So we were trying to mitigate it everywhere. We now have a lot more data and we can use a surgeon's knife and not just a blunt instrument uh, to try to really go at where we're seeing the biggest risk and help mitigate them. And for us right now, the biggest risk that we're seeing in our city is in these private spaces and gatherings. Or, or Trump rallies, of course. That's where the real risk is, right? Because this is what Democrats have, were telling us for months leading up the election. The, the Trump rallies are the real risk, not BLM rallies and protests and looting and rioting. That's not a risk. This has been, this has been politicized beyond recognition. I mean, this is now a, a straight-up political issue. But I, I do want to be uh, very clear here that she is basically making some absurd justification as she goes along with you know people need relief sometimes but don't gather for thanksgiving oh okay so you need relief 
for a Joe Biden victory dance, like literally dancing in the streets. But people shouldn't have the relief of seeing their family members over the holidays, including family members who have been particularly isolated during covid, who have been cut off from their loved ones and and friends and, and just human contact. Now, that that doesn't that doesn't count. Joe Biden's victory is important. Your Thanksgiving with your family is not. That's what Lori Lightfoot wants you to know. Before I move on to another case of this, I just wanted to point out, she says we're in Chicago, just just to take an example, they're doing great with masks in Chicago. They're doing great with masks in Chicago. OK, I'm so happy to hear that uh, in August. You had, uh, you know, you had fifteen hundred, let's say, to two thousand cases a day in Chicago. Uh, yesterday you had 11, oh, I'm sorry, 15,000, 15,000 as of November 13th. So a few days ago, it's the data that just popped up here. 12,000, I think November 16th was 12,000. There we go. That's the closest one. So we've gone from call it uh, 1,500 to 12,000, 15,000 a couple days ago, new cases. And, but we're doing great with masks. Gee. How great would we be doing without mask mandates? I, I, I asked that question in, in all in all honesty. She says and she's the mayor and she's watching it very closely and she's a Democrat. She says we're doing great, guys. Great masking. OK, cool. Cases are up seven X in two months. Well, what are we to, what are we to believe that without our amazing cloth mask policy, they'd be up 70? Is that really what we're going to think? In New York City, we didn't wear masks in February when the virus was spreading all over the city. And it didn't get up to those kinds of numbers, right? going up to 100,000 cases a day, let's say, something like that. But in Chicago, a city with 2 million instead of 8 million people, they're, they're up to 15,000 cases a day. And they're a great example of mask wearing. But like I said, that's all. And if you don't wear them, you're a bad person. In fact, it is your it is your patriotic duty. Play clip five. Ask a rhetorical question. Do you guys understand this? Does anybody understand why a governor would turn this into a political statement? It's about patriotism. It's about being patriotic. It's about saving lives for real. I'm not this is not hyperbole. It's about being patriotic. And I think you're seeing more and more as this god awful virus continues to spread almost unabated that uh, we uh, that governors are stepping up. He says it spreads. I'm using his words now. I'm, I'm using the Democrat talking points here, and I just want explanations. Uh, he's using words like unabated. Meanwhile, we have masking going on. Meanwhile, we have masking going on in numbers that they're praising. Unabated means effectively without any stopping of it, right? It's just free reign to spread. But our masking has been great. Good job with the masking, but Biden's saying it's spreading unabated. Nobody wants to see these two things in conflict, though, right? Because a whole lot of people will look like a bunch of dumbasses if we actually dig into what's uh, happening here. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. And another one. 
Another one here telling us that we all have to mask up, that we have to listen to the mandates, we have to uh, obey all these different rules and regulations around COVID, but he doesn't have to obey the rules. He's important. He's an important, powerful person who's doing the bidding of the left, so he gets to live by a different set of rules. That's the explanation we get. That's the reality of this. So uh, let's just hear from him himself because he's got to do a little fake apology thing here. We got Gavin Newsom, everybody. Play 13. I was asked to go to a friend's 50th birthday. Uh, my wife and I, a friend that I've known for almost 20 years and, uh, and a friend that had well put a lot of time and energy into his 50th birthday. It was in Napa, which was in the orange status, relatively loose compared to some other counties. Uh, it was to be an outdoor uh, uh, restaurant, and we started the, well, the program started four. Clock. It was one of those early reservations. I got there a little bit late at 4.30. Uh, and as soon as I sat down at uh, the larger table, I realized it was a little larger group uh, than I had anticipated. Uh, and I made a bad mistake. Instead of sitting down, uh, I should have stood up and walked back, got in my car and drove back uh, to my house. Instead, I chose to sit there with my wife uh, and a number of other couples that were outside the household. You can quibble about the guidelines, et cetera, et cetera, but the spirit of what I'm preaching all the time uh, was contradicted, and I got to own that. And so I want to apologize to you uh, because I need to preach and practice, not just preach. And not practice. And I've done my best to do that. Uh, We're all human. We all fall short sometimes. He's much more slick. I'll give him that than, say, Governor Cuomo is, who is just a deluded sociopath. The governor of California, you know, he's a a smooth operator. He is. You know, you say, ah, okay, we're all fallible. We all and you want to sympathize with him, except. You, if you were running a restaurant and you ran afoul of one of Newsom's mandates, you don't get to say, well, we made a mistake when we had that reservation for 12 people. And no, you get a fine. You get shut down. You get punished. He just gets to say, oh, you know, we're all human. But I'd also note that even his takeaway here is wrong. I don't have a problem with Gavin Newsom going to French Laundry, by the way, considered by some the fanciest and finest restaurant in america actually it's thomas keller's flagship place up in napa i remember i tried to go there over 10 years ago and i think they told me there was a reservation list stretching back six months or something like that and basically no chance kid you know i'd saved up all my pennies for my government work i just wanted to go there as a culinary you know a culinary uh, special treat couldn't do it uh, but French Laundry is a great restaurant. True. Very, very expensive. Is it worth the enormous fee? I don't know. But that's for you to decide. Point here being, I got no problem with Gavin Newsom going to a, fi- a friend's 50th birthday party. Good for him. I got a problem with Gavin Newsom walking around telling everybody else you can't go to your friend or dad or, you know, mom or co-workers 50th birthday party. Can't do that. Sorry. Not allowed. Government mandate. Too dangerous. Too dangerous. That's what they tell us. That's what they say. Well, do as I do. uh, Do as I say, not as I do is really now a mantra for Democrats in power during COVID, isn't it? Almost like they enjoy the authority, but they don't want the responsibility. (laughs) 
Thanks for listening to the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Cue all the hysteria out there now over how if Trump doesn't just hand over the keys to the White House tomorrow, we're all going to die of COVID because of the delay. Oh, my gosh. Right. I mean, what they've used COVID for so many things. Why not have this be the secret to convincing everybody that Trump's delay is costing lives? His delay in conceding. That's really what this is all about. You're hearing a lot of this of this now. Uh, Joe Biden's out there. He's he's you know giving his team's talking points. And then the media will reflect those talking points back to him with questions that are effectively given everything that you've said is true. How awful is Trump really? And what should we do to continue to talk about his awfulness in the press? But but first, let's start with what Joe's contention is here. Here's Joe Biden. Joe Biden. No joke. No joke. Period. Period. I mean, I'm just here saying stuff that people tell me to say, and I've been doing it for 40 years. Play clip one. It's great news that Moderna and Pfizer have each come up with vaccines that are in excess of 90% effectiveness. And getting the vaccine and a vaccination, though, are two different things. Everyone on our call today and our Zoom today agreed that the sooner we have access to the administration's distribution plan, the sooner this transition would be smoothly move forward. And, you know, as we battle COVID, we also make sure the business and workers have the tools, the resources, the national guidance and health and safety standards to operate safely. And we can do that. We can bring Democrats and Republicans together work with business and labor to deliver those necessary resources. And for millions of Americans who've lost hours and wages or have lost their jobs, we all agreed on our call that we can deliver immediate relief. You know what would help in delivering immediate relief if Nancy Pelosi stopped holding relief hostage to her outlandish demands to bail out cities that were running up huge debts even before the COVID crisis. But he's not going to talk about that. No, instead, what you get from Joe Biden is we just want to know what their vaccine rollout plan is, man. We, we just want to know what what's going on with that. One issue with it. We all understand what that would turn into, right? They're saying they want to know the vaccine rollout plan so that there can be a smoother transition. And keep in mind that Trump hasn't even accepted that there is necessarily there could be, but a transition coming. And that's the part of this that they're not going to that's not going to shift. That's not going to change. But what we all know they would do the moment that the Trump team told them what the transition plan and what the uh, vaccine plans are. They would start criticizing it publicly, trashing it. Oh, my gosh. Trump is just putting forward this vaccine distribution plan that privileges you know, white cisgender patriarchy or something, you know, there would be some, oh my gosh, you know, oh, it's only the vaccines only for the rich. Uh, What? It's going to nursing homes and healthcare providers. Oh, you know, whatever it may be, right? That's, that's what they're going to tell us. So it just opens up all kinds of criticism. They got plenty of time. Remember, they're going to be handed a plan if there is a transition of what the vaccine is supposed to be. But really, this is all them saying this is all the storyline 
of we would do a better job and any problems in the vaccine distribution that do come up if there's a Biden presidency will immediately be blamed upon Trump and his unwillingness to pass the plans to them now so they can come up with their fixes to the plan, even though there's zero reason to believe that Joe Biden and the clowns that he is filling in in slots around him already would be better at this. No reason to believe it whatsoever. Who just created the public-private partnership to get us to this stage? Who, who created that? That's right. It was the Trump administration. Right? It was President Trump that came up with this Operation Warp Speed with his advisors, I understand, marshalling the experience and the knowledge of experts around him. But they were able to do that, and you'll notice they get no benefit as a result. They have, there's no willingness to say, wow, good job, Trump and team. You guys probably know what you're doing. Let us know about this vaccine plan when you can, because we want to make sure we do a great job of implementing it when Joe Biden takes over. I'm talking about from the perspective of the Biden team. That's that would be a reasonable position. No, their position is, oh, this is an outrage. He's not conceding. He's not giving us what we need. He's not doing what we tell him to do. It's terrible. It's awful. And the media is, of course, playing along with the whole thing. Here's a NBC News reporter that I mean, this is a this is a great question, because this is a reminder. You could call this, you know, the the Obama, the, the Obama administration era of journalism questions. Right. This is the kind of stuff you'd see when they'd ask Obama, sir, I know this is going to be a tough one, but what's it like to have to deal with the evil and stupid Republicans when you yourself are a super genius that everybody should bow down to and beg forgiveness from for just not being as awesome as you. That was 95% of mainstream journos for eight years. It was, it was embarrassing. It was debasing. I mean, just as a human being, to be so, so just to be always supplicating, you know, to be so just toadies all the time. But anyway, you're going to see a lot of that if there if there is a Biden administration. And here's NBC, uh, NBC reporter who's doing a great example of what you can expect for Biden. Same kind of treatment play, too. Good to see you. I want to start with a question about uh, your pandemic planning and then a question about your economic plan. You, you spoke about the need to access the outgoing administration's covid vaccine distribution plans. What do you see as the biggest threat to your transition right now, given President Trump's unprecedented attempt to obstruct and delay a smooth transfer of power? More people may die. Isn't that amazing? Think about all the ways that he showed the editorial line that he's taking in that question, the unprecedented obstruction that's going on. What are the threats to you saving so many lives? Joe Biden is an imbecile. He is not a smart person. He does not have good judgment. He is not knowledgeable about anything that helps the public with the policies that he implements. I just want to scream. No one thinks this guy's impressive, but now they're all going to pretend like he is. Democrats until five minutes ago knew that he was a buffoon, but he'd been around forever. And, you know, he was there to hold Obama's coat for eight years. And now all of a sudden we're supposed to think that he's the dear leader. Oh, he's amazing. He's going to save us. It wasn't that question. That question was perfect. Given how or uh, how awful and horrible Trump is. 
What are you going to do to save more lives in the face of his efforts to kill more people because he's awful? Journos, baby. That's how they do it. That's how they get down. And Biden's really no better. I mean, Biden, of course, I love it. He goes, people will die. Yeah. yeah sure, that's right. Everyone's going to die because Trump. I'm just going to tell you this. You know how the anti-war movement disappeared under Obama? I mean, there were a couple of, and hey, at least they're consistent. There were a couple of code pink crazy ladies running around occasionally during the Obama administration. They had no institutional support. The editorial page, the New York Times, CNN, nothing. People don't even know that Obama, just to look like he wasn't some wimp on national security who didn't know anything, surged over 100,000 troops in Afghanistan and announced a withdrawal at the same time of the surge. So the Taliban got to sit there and basically look at the calendars and look at the clocks and be like, OK, well, we fight this thing out for a while, but we keep some in reserve. We go across the border to Pakistan and we just wait it out. It's exactly what they did. But we lost a lot of particularly a lot of brave Marines during that period fighting. A childhood friend of mine was there in Helmand province. And I remember, you know, we came back talking to him about this stuff. It, it was it was nasty fighting going on there. We lost a lot of Marines. Media didn't even talk about it. I mean, they covered a little. Oh, there's a little bit of a troop thing going on in Afghanistan. But we lost more soldiers in Afghanistan under Obama than we did under Bush. Does anyone even know that? Does anyone even understand that? No, of course not. Because the anti the anti-war movement disappeared because the anti-war left is disingenuous. Right. They're really just a bunch of Marxists trying to undermine U.S. foreign policy abroad. If they had been consistent, I'd say, well, good for them, because I do think the Bush administration pushed for too much conflict in too many places. But for them, it's really just a tool for the anti-war left. It's a tool of politics, the pretense that they care so much about our soldiers or they care about humanitarian losses in these countries. They really don't. It's about what works as a political instrument of bludgeoning the other side. And then when Obama's in office, oh, no, we got to back off this. And now, now war, now Libyan war is fine. Now, you know, whatever we got to do is fine. You're going to see the same thing with COVID. Be prepared for that. It's going to be disgusting. Do you think CNN's going to have a COVID death tracker up if Biden takes office every day? How many deaths? How many deaths? How many deaths? You think that's going to happen? Oh, want to make a prediction right now? All of a sudden, the deaths from COVID will just be a thing that happens. It's sad, but no, it's not any one person's fault, which is true, by the way. But that mentality has been completely in, in reverse now. It, it's, it's all Trump's fault. Every death is Trump's fault. And they even go so far as to lie to you about the vaccine's uh, mistrust in society. Here's Joe Biden himself saying it. Play clip seven. It's important that people who are in the greatest need get it. I wouldn't hesitate to get the vaccine. But I also want to set uh, um, an example. Uh, but I, I wouldn't hesitate to get the vaccine if, in fact, Dr. Dr. Fauci and these two organizations, whether it's Moderna or Pfizer, who have been extremely responsible, conclude that it is uh, it is safe and, uh, and, and able to be done. Look, the only reason people question the vaccine now is because of Donald Trump. That's the reason why people are questioning the vaccine, because all the things he says and doesn't say, whether it's truthful, is it not truthful, the exaggerations. I think we're on a clear path now. We're in a clear path where the international community and national leaders uh, in the scientific community have focused on these two vaccines. They appear to be ready for prime time, ready to be used. And if that continues along those roads, I would take the vaccine. 
The only reason that people distrust the vaccine is Donald Trump leaves out that Joe Biden and Kamala Harris and other Democrats and the media became temporary and situational anti-vaxxers for months leading up to the election because they wanted people terrified and anything, any lie, any tool, any uh, artifice that they had to use to defeat Trump was okay, including spreading anti-vax nonsense, as if the Trump FDA would also be able to collude with Pfizer and Moderna to put out an unsafe or ineffective vaccine. You want to talk about a conspiracy. You want to talk about no evidence for something. But Kamala Harris and, and Joe Biden were the ones spreading that poison for months. And now they blame Trump for the poison that they spread. They created a perception among their followers who it's, you know, we're going to see again, who's the real cult? Is it the Democrats or Republicans? Trust me, it's Democrats. Remember the Obama era? They worshiped the guy. It was absurd. But they created the Democrats created the perception that you couldn't trust the Trump FDA. And now they're going to turn around and say, oh, gosh, look at this. People don't trust Trump among our supporters in particular. We're going to have to clean up this mess. I mean, they're like the people that light a fire, that they're the ones that commit arson. And then they complain when the firefighters arrive. Oh, you guys haven't put out that fire yet. Oh, gosh. You know, really not doing a good enough job here. They're the ones that started this. It's because of them. You think they'll ever admit that? No, never. Of course, that's that's completely absurd. They won't admit that. No, so much easier to just continue to play this game and lie to people. And one of the big lies is that Joe Biden represents some kind of new era of honor in our politics. Joe Biden is a slimy, feckless, reckless, self-interested D.C. swamp creature. That's just the truth. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. A quick note on these Georgia Senate runoffs. Who are War, uh, Warnock and Ossoff, the two Democrat candidates here? What, what should we know about them? There's this plan that we're, we're seeing underway right now where Californians are saying they're going to move to Georgia. I guess they're going to establish some form of, of residency there. They've got some way they think that they're going to be able to do this. They're looking to change their residences, move to Georgia and vote in order to get these two Democrats elected. Let me say right now, friends, I've been advocating for this for a while. I want conservatives to pick a city. We should create a nationwide movement, pick a city that we are going to take over politically. So whether it's Dallas or Tampa or you name it, we show up. It has to be in a red ish state. We show up and we say, all right, I want, you know, 300, 400,000 Republicans to all converge in this one place. And we're going to flip this city red and we're going to run it like a conservative city. I don't know what we call this project, but we need to do it. It needs to happen because right now we don't have any cities of any real size, which is unacceptable. Um, But because also think about the example we could set. 
a city where police are supported, where public services are efficient, but also taxes are minimal. I mean, think about what we could do. Anyway, here's John Ossoff, supposed to be Mr. Mr. Nice Guy. He does remind me of that Obama era, Obamacare pajama boy meme. But here's John Ossoff, who the 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 Maddow watching Chris Hayes loving MSNBC squad. They think this guy's fantastic. I mean, if you're a leftist, they love Ossoff. Is he a nice guy running in Georgia for the Senate seat? Play 18. We need to send a message this year. We need to send a message that if you indulge this kind of politics, you're not just going to get beaten. You're going to get beaten so bad you can never run or show your face again in public. Because we have had enough, absolutely enough, of what we are getting from Donald Trump and his fellow travelers right now. Never show your face in public again for the crime of supporting Donald Trump. That's what they're telling us. They want to never show your face in public again. Oh, yeah, I can feel all the unity and the healing, can't you? And here's Democrat candidate Raphael Warnock, play 17. I don't no matter what happens next month, more than a third of the nation that would go along with this is reason to be afraid. America needs to repent for its worship of whiteness on on full display. Repent, America, for your worship of whiteness. Uh, These are the uh, Democrat candidates here, Ossoff and Warnock. These are the things that they say. And they are the ones that the entire Democrat apparatus is going to go through, go to extreme measures to do everything in their power to make sure that they win so that there can be a Democrat majority in the House, the Senate, and perhaps, yes, even the presidency in the hands of Joe Biden. That is a recipe for a 2021 that could be even worse, believe it or not, than 2020. Thanks for listening to the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. The fight is still on. This election is not yet over, despite what you're hearing in so many different places in the media. Let's hear from the campaign right now, an advisor to the campaign, senior strategic advisor, that is, our friend Steve Cortez, back in the mix. Steve, thanks for making the time for us. I appreciate it, Buck, and you are very right. When I talk about this election, we must speak in the present tense. Because it is ongoing. Let's not be lulled into speaking in the past tense as though it is over. Now, you've got a roughly 15,000, I think it's a little less than that, but roughly 15,000 vote margin of victory thus far. We can call it a margin of separation, perhaps, for Joe Biden in, uh, in Georgia. We just found 2,600 new votes. Just, oh, look, 2,600 votes, two for one going for Trump. Does this begin to chip away at the... Let's just move past this and not audit and not recheck and not recount anything, Steve. But it, it certainly does. You know, obviously, this is very troubling that these votes are just happen to be missing and suddenly got found and that they overwhelmingly favor the president. Uh, you know, forgive me if I'm not shocked. Uh, right. Sort of like the police showing up in Casablanca and find out while well, there's gambling going on at Rick's. Uh, and by the way, this statistical case also backs up this anecdotal case. When I mean this statistical case, I'm saying, for example, Look at the state of Georgia and the rate of rejection of mail-in ballots. Four years ago, when they uh, had about 200,000 mail-in ballots in 2016, which is a more normal rate, 
before the pandemic, they rejected 3% of all ballots that were mailed in. They were either not registered voters, there was something invalid about the ballot itself, it wasn't signed, whatever the reason, 3% were rejected. Now this time, 1.3 million ballots in Georgia were mailed in, more than six times the 2016 total. That's not surprising given the pandemic. However, here's what is surprising and more than surprising, I think uh, damning really of the vote totals and the validity of the vote totals. That rate of rejection went down from 3% all the way to 0.24% of ballots were rejected. In other words, one twelfth the level, the percentage of ballots that were rejected in 2016 were rejected this time, even though with such a mammoth increase, over a million point, uh, 1.1 million more ballots coming in. If anything, if there were a serious vetting of the voting going on, we would expect, if anything, that, that percentage to actually rise, Buck, because you have so many people doing it for the first time. The fact is the percentage fell dramatically, and I believe the complete void of vetting of votes, and it wasn't contained in Georgia, Similar thing happened in Pennsylvania. As a matter of fact, the numbers are actually even more damning in Pennsylvania. Uh, this indicates that a large share of these votes are simply not valid. And the only way for us to determine if they are is a serious audit, not just a recount, not just sending them back to the machine, but an actual hand audit of these results. And in the case of Georgia, if, if we were to have the same rejection rate as 2016, 39,000 votes would be rejected instead of the only 3,000 that were. Now, where are we with the recount in Georgia? The president's been tweeting about this. We know there was some kind of recount, but he's not happy with what's going on. Can you just tell us what is the status uh, of Georgia as of today? Right. Well, listen, our, the campaign is not happy with it, obviously, and neither is the president because we're not having an honest recount there. And this is particularly disappointing because we have a supposedly Republican secretary of state. Uh, Georgia, while it is a swing state, uh, statewide has been electing Republicans lately, so we would expect better than this. But the unfortunate reality is we know that the recounts have not been, that it has been a recount rather than an auditing. And that's, again, a, a crucial difference here. We're not saying just put the numbers through the machine again. You know, we realize that you're going to come up with a very similar number there. You're going to have a very tiny sampling of just honest human error. You know, you'll change a few hundred votes. That's normal for a just, quote, recount. What we're talking about is an audit. And again, I think an audit for, for very legitimate means. I think the statistical case for the improbability of Joe Biden's win is really compelling. And one of the reasons, by the way, let me give you another stat related to Georgia. Let's give you some of the numbers. These Biden-only ballots nationwide, and what I mean by Biden-only is people who supposedly voted for Joe Biden and then for no one else down ticket. Now, that's a rare phenomenon. It certainly is rare even in 2020 outside of the swing states. However, there are a total of 450,000 at least of these Biden-only ballots in America. Uh, they are predominantly in these swing states, which seems far too convenient. And to get specific on Georgia, uh, where we have very contentious Senate races, obviously both races are heading into runoff, uh, but where you had highly contentious Senate races with a lot of interest in races, plural, because there's two of them, uh, it's really telling that if you look at the Biden-only votes, there were 95,000 Biden-only ballots in the state of Georgia, where somebody voted for Biden and then not down ballot, allegedly. If we compare that to Trump, no such phenomenon. Out of the 2.4 million votes that Donald Trump got, uh, of those, only 818 people voted for Trump only, and then nobody down ballot. So I mean, think about that disparity. Fewer than 1,000 people voted for Trump only. 95,000 supposedly voted for Biden only. Uh, look, that just, it reeks, <laughs> let's just be honest about it. And again, in and of itself, I want to be fair, that is not conclusive in and of itself. It does not prove fraud, but it sure does smell bad, and it sure does point uh, to a phenomenon that's pretty hard for any reasonable person to explain in the state of Georgia. 
Now, we're speaking to Steve Cortez, senior strategic advisor to the Trump campaign. Steve, tell me this. Why haven't we, you know, we, we have all these stories, all this sort of, you know, the affidavits and all this about fraud. But I have not yet seen the aha. Here is proof of a fraud. We've seen proof of irregularity. No question about that. Right. When you're finding ballots, sure. when they're, you know, there, there's no there. And th- I, by the way, anyone who says there were not going to be at least ir- irregularities in an election with. 150 million, give or take, ballots cast. I mean, they're living in a fantasy world, right? So we know there are irregularities and that those those should be corrected. And that means ballots are going to go one side or the other. Okay, fine. But intentional fraud. Are we just, you know, we have all these people saying, I saw this, I saw that. Are we really going to be able to prove any of this? You know, but I believe you will. And here's what I would tell you. Those those cases of what I would call micro fraud are important. You know, a, a dead person voting, an illegal immigrant voting. But I'll be the first to concede that that will not change the election. Now, we should clean that up and people should be punished and people should end up in handcuffs when they have broken election laws. That's serious. But but I will agree with you that that's, that is not the smoking gun of macro fraud, right? The macro fraud that we're talking about, I think there are two instances here, both of which are still to be argued in federal court. So I would I would tell folks out there to, to hold tight because these arguments have not even started yet. Um, and there are really two elements to them. One is were hundreds of thousands of ballots uh, illegally counted, meaning that there were no Republican observers, that there was no vetting, as I talked about, in terms of the percentages, insanely low percentages of rejection rates. And Rudy Giuliani, primarily in terms of the public uh, face of the campaign, has been making this case that in Pennsylvania, there are as many as 600,000 plus ballots that are simply not valid, not according to our opinion of the Trump campaign, according to Pennsylvania law. So that's uh, the macro case. And then the perhaps even more damning one, um, and Sidney Powell has really been the, the tip of the spear on this one, is the voting software. Now, she has said, and I think she has enormous credibility, she's one of the best lawyers in America, she certainly has a track record of meaning what she says publicly and eventually backing it with evidence. And I only say eventually because she simply does not want to make that evidence public yet because it's about to be argued in court. Uh, but Sidney Powell has been very, very clear in her in her media appearances that she has absolute proof of cheating going on in a systemic way regarding Dominion Software and perhaps other vote, uh, vote vendor companies that are out there, but primarily Dominion. And it really does, uh, when, when I talk about the statistical improbability of the case, that alone does not prove that there was fraud, but it points us toward fraud, right? And I think a reasonable person says we're gonna take the compelling circumstantial case and then take a more serious look at things that can actually be proven as fraudulent. So I am, like everybody else, awaiting those arguments to be made in court. But I'm very, very confident that Sidney Powell and others on the Trump legal team are going to make a compelling case that there wasn't just circumstantial fraud, evidence of fraud, but actual provable evidence. And I, I encourage everybody out there, I encourage your audience uh, to be patient in that regard. I mean, yes, we do have to move quickly, um, but we also can't build cases that are, that are rock solid uh, in a matter of hours. And so, you know, we realize the clock is ticking. We realize December 8th and December 14th are critical deadlines for the Electoral College. And I can assure you everyone of the Trump campaign is, is working around the clock, but I can also assure you that the case has to be rock solid, the constitutional case. I believe eventually that several of these states, Pennsylvania included, will not be able to certify electors. And I believe we're going to be in for a contingent election 
which is not the optimal choice, but but it's also hardly without historical precedent. And it is something that is constitutionally uh, and legally mandated in certain cases. I believe that's where we're going to end up. And I really believe that's how the president is going to end up with reelection. So let's just for everyone listening. And we're speaking to Steve Cortez, who's a senior strategic advisor to the Trump 2020 campaign. Steve, you're saying that this these legal challenges may result in a situation where it comes down to not the Electoral College votes cast in the end, but it'll be the House of Representatives. Is that what you think may happen? I believe so. Now, again, that look, that, that's not official. I'm speaking. Right. That's, that's an analysis and projection. So everyone's clear. This is your Correct. assessment. But go ahead. And of course, none of us know, right? But I, in my view, that is the most likely scenario is that unfortunately, and it's the fault of the governors of some of these states, for example, Governor Wolf of Pennsylvania, who took it upon himself to unilaterally change the election procedures of his state, something he is not allowed to do by law nor by the U.S. Constitution, but he did it anyway. Unfortunately, his state Supreme Court backed him in that. But because of that unlawful act, uh, he created a system where I believe it's going to be nearly impossible to certify the votes and to send proper electors to the United States Congress. Now, again, this has happened before historically, and we we have procedures that trust the process. I mean, this has happened in America. It may happen again. We'll see. But that is my uh, my projection. But I think it's an educated one is that it will be difficult for either side to reach 270 in terms of electoral votes. And if that happens, the vote then goes to the House of Representatives where each state gets an equal vote. So Wyoming, our smallest state by population, gets one vote, as does California, our most populous. Um, In that case, there are 26 delegations controlled by Republicans. If party lines hold, the president would then be elected, uh, re-elected president of the United States. Again, look, it's not optimal, but it's not unprecedented. Um, And it's not a crisis. It doesn't mean that we can't go that route if we need to. Uh, But there's a lot of stops, steps between here and there. And, you know, all I'm saying, too, is that there is there are enough irregularities on an anecdotal basis. There is enough statistical evidence out there uh, making a circumstantial case that we should doubt these returns. And then we're going to see about the legal case, the full legal case regarding wholesale macro fraud that the Trump campaign can make. And by the way, I'm not privy to that. Uh, no one is outside of that legal team, but but we all will soon be privy to it in the country. And we will assess it as a country, as a people, and as will, most importantly, the courts, very likely the Supreme Court. And from there, I think we find out who's truly going to be president of the United States. But I would caution anybody who believes that there is a president-elect right now. There is not a president-elect. Steve, can we hold you for one second? So I just want to give everybody a, a, a quick moment to catch their breath. I want to come back and ask you, Just a a few questions about the Trump win among Latinos relative to where the GOP is. Can you give us a sec for that? You bet. bet. All right. We got Steve Cortez. He is a senior strategic advisor to the Trump campaign. We'll be back with him in just a moment. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Back with my friend Steve Cortez, senior strategic advisor to the Trump 2020 campaign. He's walked us through where we are now on these legal fights. Also made a made his own analytic assessment in the future, a prediction that this could, in fact, uh, emphasis on could, but could, in fact, go to the House of Representatives to determine who the next president will be. But, Steve, I just want to ask you about the broader trend here of the incredible uh, surge in Latino support relative to what what the polls were saying and and GOP expectations 
Latino support for President Trump. Tell us about this. Yes, listen, the, the president did incredibly well. This is super important to me as an Hispanic uh, and the whole team of the Trump campaign has been working for years, actually, since the president won in 2016 to build support, to reach out in respectful and intentional ways to the Hispanic community. If you contrast that, by the way, with our opponent, Joe Biden, his idea of Hispanic outreach was going to Florida and playing Despacito on his cell phone. Uh, I call that Hispanderine. And it certainly didn't work, particularly in Florida. We won 47% of the Hispanic vote in Florida. And that's according to exit polling. I think we might have done even better than that. But regardless, I'll take 47%. It's part of why the president just robbed in the state of Florida. It actually wasn't even close to find all the skeptics and certainly all the fake news polling that was out there. Um, on a national level, though, it's not just a Florida story. It's not just a Cuban and Venezuelan story. A lot of the media is trying to put it in a box and say, well, he just did really well among Cubans. That's not the case. For example, if we look at Texas, uh, where there's very few Cubans. It's almost entirely a Mexican-American Hispanic population, of course, in border state of Texas. If we look at those border counties, it's really incredible the gains the president saw in those counties, which are overwhelmingly Hispanic. And I'll, I'll give you some of the numbers. Uh, Zapata County is 85% Hispanic right on the U.S.-Mexico border. President Trump won it. And his margin versus his own margin in 2016 increased 38%. Right next to Zapata County is Starr County, 96% Hispanic. It's the most Hispanic county in America. The president didn't quite win it, but he only lost it by five points after losing it by 60 points in 2016. And you know Buck is such an astute student of politics. Those kinds of swings just don't happen in four years, a 55% swing for the same candidate. But why did this happen? And I, I think this is really important, particularly when it comes to Texas. And I, I call it the three Gs. I think it was gas, uh, guns, and God that brought Hispanics over to President Trump's side. What I mean by that is gas is the energy industry. Uh, it's critical for all Americans, of course, but particularly for the state of Texas and a lot of Hispanics very directly involved in the energy industry. I think Hispanics rightly knew that Joe Biden would be an existential threat to America's energy dominance. That's terrible for the country, for Texas, and for a lot of Hispanics who work in those industries. When it comes to guns, the whole state of Texas has a great uh, culture of the Second Amendment of self-reliance and self-protection. And there's a lot of good hombres in Texas uh, with names like Cortez and Gomez who are not going to let a fake Mexican Beto O'Rourke be empowered by Joe Biden to take away their firearms. And then I think the last G that matters is God. Catholics are overwhelmingly church people, uh, whether evangelical or Catholic. We do not want Joe Biden to be in the White House so that he can once again target religious groups like the wonderful women, the nuns of the Little Sisters of the Poor. It matters a lot to Hispanics. And so we saw a surge of Hispanic support for the America First agenda and for President Trump. It's one of the reasons, by the way, that I so doubt the election results as told to us by the corporate media. This president got the highest minority share overall in 60 years for any Republican candidate. Um, I believe if you combine that with a net gain of 10 million votes over 2016, to me, it is the, the idea that we lost, frankly, is at least in a clean count of the legal votes. Uh, to me, that's a dubious case, but we made great inroads with the SPAC, something to really build on from here. Amazing as well, Steve, especially considering that one of the main lines of attack against this president was anti-Hispanic bias, right? That he was racist against Hispanics. This was apparently news, or I should say fake news, to millions of Hispanics across the country who, as you said, are, are, are traditional in a lot of their values, are entrepreneurs, are business people, and want a better, brighter future. They love this country, they're patriots, and they came out and they voted for Donald Trump. Thanks so much, Steve. Steve right. Cortez, advisor of the Trump campaign. Always great to have you on, buddy. Thanks for giving us your time today. Thanks, Buck. 
Thanks for listening to the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Let's talk about the Joe Biden cancer charity scam. Oh, wait, you, you haven't heard of this one? You've somehow uh, not seen this being blasted all across social media. You're not you're not seeing the the constant headlines about this one. What a shock, friends. Let me explain to you a little bit about what we're actually seeing here. Let, let's talk about this for a moment, shall we? Joe Biden, it turns out, had a few years ago founded a charity for cancer research. Now, this is something that's very near and dear to the Biden family, of course, because Joe Biden lost a son to cancer. So understandably, people would want to support this. Everybody hates cancer. We're all united in our fight against against cancer. But if you're going to raise money for a charity in the name of that fight, shouldn't the money actually go to charitable purposes? Is that fair to say? Right. In 2017, Biden founded the Biden Cancer Initiative. In two years, it took in four point eight million dollars in contributions. That's a lot of money for a charity. I know people who have started charities. In fact, I know someone whose father died of heart disease and she started a heart uh, uh, foundation, a charitable foundation. The Biden Cancer Initiative, which, remember, was started right after he was no longer vice president. Just to put that out there. So he's looking for stuff, right? I mean, this is right around the same period when the Hunter Biden reaching out to China and the Burisma stuff would really be kicking in more. You know, this is what we would expect. Biden's trying to get some good stuff going for himself. So the Biden Cancer Initiative spent three million dollars, three million seventy thousand and change on salaries. So about three million dollars on salaries and about a million dollars on travel and conferences. Zero dollars on grants for research and for treatment. And this is all from the New York Post. Wait a second. You, you have a cancer charity that you get four million dollars of donations. And remember, those donations are tax deductible. So you get people that get to write a Biden cancer charity initiative check and then deduct that from their taxes so there's a big incentive. It's, you know, people and that's a good thing, right? We want people giving to charity, but we want the charity to do something. And now you have the usual hyenas in the mainstream media all coming together, trying to defend this practice with Joe Biden. They're trying to say, well, they never claimed that this charity would fund research or initiatives or anything. No, this is what Snopes and these other fact check organizations are trying to do now. They're saying, well, it was really about and I, I want to give you the, the specifics here. It's not a grant giving organization. Its mission was, quote, to convene and connect partners. Oh, OK. So they raise a bunch of money. They pay salaries to people millions of dollars in two years, friends, three million dollars of salaries a million dollars of gathering together for, let's be honest, parties, conferences where I'm sure they had amazing food, fantastic lodging. You know, they're paying for these. This is the taxpayer subsidizing 
private jet travel and five star meals for Joe Biden and his cronies. Oh, and paying them salaries to arrange the travel and the five star meals. That's what this is. This is a small scale version of the Clinton Foundation, which raised two billion dollars over many years, spent tens of millions on private jet travel. Right. You work for a charity. You really got to fly private all the time. Hmm. Interesting. You know, you're, you're traveling on the charity's dime. You, you got to fly in a private jet. Well, if you're Bill or Hillary or Chelsea or any of their cronies. Yeah, of course, you're not going to fly. You're not a pleb. You're not going to fly commercial. The charity is going to pay for you to fly in a private jet because that's what charities do. That was the Clinton Foundation. And the lib media, of course, all went along with this. Said, oh, no, the, the Bill, Hillary and Chelsea Clinton Foundation does great stuff all over the world. You look into this and there are a lot of people that are donating to it that have interest before the U.S. government, including foreign entities, foreign governments that generally don't care very much about charity, but they're willing to write a big check and they're willing to pay big dollars, which go directly into the Clinton pockets for speeches. Right. We know that the Clintons made tens of millions of dollars personally off of their influence peddling schemes, giving speeches to big companies and corporations, all because Hillary Clinton was supposed to run again and supposed to be president. So that's what was happening there. People like me during that whole period were making noises about this. We were saying, hold on a second. This isn't really they're polluting the idea of charity. The Clinton Foundation was at best a pass through. It would give some portion of the money that it wasn't using on conferences and private jet travel and salaries to other charities that would actually do some stuff that might be good with the. But but there was no there were no metrics. The Clinton Foundation wasn't doing anything as an entity that was benefiting the world. The whole thing was a scam, basically, with a little bit of, you know, it was like running a, a, a company that's a front, right? You can have a luggage store somewhere, but if you're really not selling any luggage, just a few pieces here and there, but you are selling a lot of drugs out the back of it, you know, that's what we call a money laundering operation. But you got to have a front. The Clinton Foundation was effectively a money laundering operation for influence peddling by Bill and Hillary Clinton. We know this because they shut it down largely. They shut down the entire Clinton Global Initiative right after Hillary lost. All of a sudden, the donations dried up. All of a sudden, there was no more money. There was no more interest in this. Gee, what, what happened? I thought, I thought that Saudi Arabia and Russia and these countries that were writing these, these checks to Bill and Hillary Clinton and their foundation, I thought they all cared so much about women's empowerment and combating climate change oh no only idiots believe that right that's why they had to shut it down though because the influence peddling was no longer so valuable so the charity front couldn't sustain itself anymore that's what happened with the cgi so what about the biden cancer initiative isn't it isn't it amazing the biden cancer initiative even borrowing some of the terminology, you have the Clinton Global Initiative, the CGI, and you've got the Biden Cancer Initiative, the BCI. He probably saw what Hillary had been up to and figured, that's a great scam. I got to get in on some of that. You know what happened after a couple of years? They had to shut it down. You know why? Because it didn't do anything. Didn't actually help anyone. The charity suspended its operations in 2019. Gee, gosh, I wonder. 
what were they paying people salaries for? Millions of dollars. Taxpayer subsidized, right? You donate to this charity and then the charity directs money to people. I would love to see who is getting paid off by this thing. Three million dollars in salary, a million dollars in operating expense, meaning conferences, which is, you know, renting out the ballroom at the Four Seasons and flying people who are officers of the company in privately and paying for them to have open bar and a live band and who knows what else. That's what the Biden cancer initiative was doing. This is the guy that the Democrats now want in charge of your health care. This is the guy who's supposed to be a return to honor in our politics. I'm sorry. That's just too much for any of us to believe. We're not going to swallow that nonsense. No matter how hard they try, Biden is a swamp creature. He's corrupt. And we all know it. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Who's to blame for the Democrats actually losing House seats in a pandemic year when the Republican Party has the presidency and the Senate? You'd think that there would be such a big opening for the Democrats to run the table here, but it it didn't happen. Why is that? Hmm. Well, let's hear from one of the left wing media's favorite members of Congress, uh, Ilhan Omar, who did win reelection. Oh, Minneapolis, Minnesota, such nice people. Minneapolis, your politics. Gosh, Uh, here's Ilhan Omar. Play nine. I mean, there are so many um, lies and smears that the Republicans engage in uh, that have had impact on on races. uh, And, you know, to to blame a movement that has shown up for us in the most aggressive way to deliver a decisive victory um, for for president for president elect Biden um, is is really shameful and and something that um, I, I can't even believe my Democratic colleagues are doing. Yeah, I mean, who would have ever thought that defund the police and socialism now would be unpopular in places where people are swing voters or in in places where there are districts that are not completely left-wing echo chambers. Gosh, I don't know. But the left is upset because there was no, no matter what these legal challenges show us, there was no repudiation of Trump. Uh, There was no there there was no shattering of the Trump uh, movement and the coalition. And if anything, we now have lots of data to suggest that all the left and the media's claims of Trump being racist are absurd, given how he did with uh, black and Hispanic voters relative to traditional GOP numbers. Big improvement on those two fronts. And also, uh, the Democrats couldn't even win net House seats this time around. That's just what bigger indicator could you have of the leftward drift of the party and how that's not popular with Americans. Yeah, they might have been able to convince people with their constant orange man bad, the world is going to end because of Trump. They might have been able to fool enough people into thinking that that was true to be Trump. We shall see. But the left is a problem for Democrats. The left is a drag on the rest of the party. 
pulls down their poll numbers. And that's why they're uh, so upset with this now. I think they realize, I think the AOC, the squad, that wing of the House Democrats knows that the power structure, they may be able to push the conversation and get all the media attention, but the powers that be, for now at least, Pelosi and the rest, recognize that this is a problem. The Democrat Party's strategy for a long time now, a long time now has been to rile up the base and then moderate toward the center just before election time and hope the American people don't remember come the next election that they were fooled the last time around. That's really a central Democrat strategy. Ilhan Omar, of course, is a problem for that. Makes it too obvious. And also for the healing and unity message that Democrats want to pretend they're going with. They don't really go with it, but that they want to pretend they're going with. Uh, here's what you get from people like Ilhan Omar on the left, Democrats of the, of the socialist wing of the Democrat Party, how they refer to Trump rallies. Play 10. To speak about me at every single rally didn't really matter where he was. Uh, right. Sometimes multiple times in a day um, as he had held his Klan rallies throughout the country. Klan rallies. This sitting member of Congress. He's referring to any of you who went to a Trump rally as, as a having attended a KKK rally. And she won't even get called out for this. I mean, that's disgusting. Even Christiane Amanpour, with the fanciest accent to have ever been on television. Even Christiane Amanpour had to apologize for a crystal knock. Trump is a Nazi and his supporters are brown shirts comparison last week. She, she did have to come out and say, OK, I shouldn't have done that. Now, I don't think she's sorry for it, but it hurts the game that she's trying to play, which is, oh, but I'm just a, I'm just a journalist. I'm just presenting the facts as they need to be. Sure. But Ilhan Omar can call Trump supporters Klan members or Klan supporters just as bad. Um, and there's no blowback to this at all. And. That's what the Democrats are going to have to control as a narrative going forward. That's going to be the problem that they face. I'll also say this. While I know they're all out there calling for Trump to concede. Here's one reason I haven't gotten to in a little while. And I'll use Anderson Cooper as a case in point here, uh, who, is, who is really one of the ultimate smug elite journos out there. This guy was very lucky. CNN just built him into a household name over a long period of time. They, they decided that he would be the one. He would be the franchise, so to speak, at CNN. And just the more we're around, this is just, a, just an unimpressive guy. I don't know. It's just a guy like any. He's got a certain look, but uh, and he's a trust fund baby. And they've just decided that he was the anointed at CNN. That's the way that it happened. Uh, here he is, though. I'll, I'll use some of his commentary here to make my point, talking about the Trump team and, and where we are in the transition. Play 12. Next week, the CDC starts the process of determining which of us, which Americans, will be the first to get the vaccine. That is an incredibly important decision. Not everyone can be at the front of the line. and People will have to wait. So it should be obvious why you would want to give an incoming administration access to the people who are making these decisions right now. Because in about 65 days, it becomes their decisions, too, and they have to make it work. In our democracy, the people speak and the people change the course of history. That's what they did. 
And that is what has already happened. And the president is free to fight this in court all the way to Inauguration Day. He's been laughed out of courts. His lawyers are dropping left and right. His time is over. Let the new administration have a transition and let's help Americans through this crisis. Oh, yeah. Now CNN really cares so much about the crisis and the vaccine and the plan. All, all of a sudden, it's all about that. Did they call out Biden and Harris for convincing people not to take the vaccine effectively for months before the election? No, no, they did not. No, that didn't matter then. Just like they didn't call out the BLM mobs in the streets for the summer. That that was fine. That was necessary. That was saving lives, actually, they told us. Now, these people are intellectually and morally decrepit at CNN, but this is where they are. Um, but there's another reason why I like that Trump is continuing this fight, and it's one of the best things about Trump and Trumpism. He drives these smug, elitist, self-indulgent, vain journos completely insane, and I love it. He drives them up the wall. I mean, they just can't handle it. He makes them lose their minds, and every moment where that's the case, we should just savor it. Every moment we have, whether it's a couple more months or four more years, his ability to really get under the skin of some of the worst people in professional life in America, the modern American journalist, is a, is a tremendous talent, and it's a gift. And he, Because he's forced them, or he's made them show us who they really are. And that's never going to change again. We're not going to forget that whoever ends up winning this election. And we'll remember that CNN is a disaster and a joke and a fraud. The entire entity, the organization now is a disgrace. Are there some good people who work there? Sure. You know, but there are also good people who work in the Kremlin, right? There are good people in a lot of places. Doesn't mean the institution, the entity should not be condemned. CNN is one of them. Thanks for listening to the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Like soft butter on warm toast. Time to spread some freedom coast to coast. It's time for Roll Call. Roll call, everybody. Facebook.com slash Buck Sexton. Team Buck at iHeartMedia.com if you want to email us. And uh, Producer Mark, have you yet figured out a way that we could have uh, pigeons, you know, that, that bring the message like they do in Game of Thrones? Because that would be cool. Maybe like owls like they do at Hogwarts in the magical world. Yeah. Or I guess actually in Game of Thrones, it's a raven, but it comes from using messenger pigeons from back in the day, which is pretty ingenious when you think about it, right? Pigeons move fast. Yeah, but how do you trust the pigeon to find the right place? Well, you got to train them beforehand. You, know, huh. you can't just let pigeons run around willy-nilly. We're, you know, we're, yeah. we're civilized I don't people. think I would give an important document to a pigeon. Uh, so true story, I was walking down the street with the Snow Princess a few weeks ago. I don't think I told you this. And a bird, and I actually have photos of this, a, a bird like fell, like it fell out of a nest almost, but I don't know. It fell right in front of us and it was beautiful and it was, it was very, many different colors. And I think we, we ended up uh, believing that it was, at first I thought it was a pet and that it had fallen 
And this was not a brewer that you would normally see on a street in New York City. Okay, I've lived here my whole life. So I didn't like pick up a dirty sparrow that, you know, looked like it had just come out of some, uh, you know, mutant experiment with toxic waste in our subway system. Right. Like I, I this was a beautiful bird, different kind of green and yellow colors. Uh, it looked like uh, it looked like a parakeet kind of right. It looked like something that would be a pet. So it it and the snow princess being who she is, because um, like, you know, I don't know what else to say. Small children, dogs, animals, they all like love her. You know, like when she when she sees Tallulah, Tallulah and her spend like 20 minutes of just, you know, snuggle time because she gets so excited. So. So anyway, so she holds out her hand and, and the bird just hops into her hands. So now I'm thinking uh, I'm thinking that this has got to be, you know, have a pet bird. I think I, I think I got a pet bird, right? I mean, I'm sort of thinking, uh, I'm thinking that this may be a, um, a thing that's going to be a. And, and so we walk around to the building in New York City. It was kind of a large uh, apartment building, where I, I and I went to the and I felt so weird. I walked to the front desk, and I said, uh, "Hey, um, I don't want to be weird, but I mean, the, and she had the bird in her hand still. She was carrying it around in her hand. It was just hanging out, just chilling, like not flying away or anything." And, and we go to the front desk. And we say, hey, do, do you guys I know this is weird, but do you guys know if, if any of your tenants have like a pet bird? Because we, we think it, and it couldn't really it tried to fly a little bit. It looked like one of its wings might have been uh, hurt. So we, we didn't know what really to do. And um, we went in and, and we talked to the guy. He said, no, I don't I don't know. And he says, it is very pretty. He's like and the guy says, I think you've got a new pet. And I'm looking at her like, look, I, I don't know. I don't know about just bringing a bird. And she, of course, is like, I think we're bringing this bird home. And I'm like, no, no, I don't know if we're really bringing this bird home. So we did a little bit of searching. I actually asked my dad, who is an avid bird watcher. My dad loves bird watching, which is, I think, a, a surprise to folks. Because there's this guy who is big into sailing and golf and fishing and, and gave up hunting, grew up a big hunter. And I actually used to go hunting with him when I was a kid. And he loves bird watching. Uh, and knows all about birds. And I sent him a photo and he says, oh, that's a scarlet tanager. Um, and it, it is an American songbird. And it was a, a female scarlet tanager, I believe, that we had. And, and they are rare in New York City, but you do come across them. And we, he said that. And then as he says, this, the bird actually did just sort of fly away and look like it was okay. But it was a fun little, it was a good story, Buck. I just thought I'd tell everybody. So I had a little, we had a little Wild Kingdom experiment here in New York City. It was very fun. I totally thought at the beginning of that story that you were going to say a bird defecated on you, which I would have found so much funnier. I've had, no, I'm sure you would like that. I've had pigeons poop on me so many times. And what I hate is somebody always goes, oh, it's good luck. It is not good luck for a pigeon to poop on you. There's no good luck. You know, I've had so many people. I, well, I've walked into my office before. When I, was, I think when I, when I worked at the, the NYPD, I was like, oh, crap, I got a pigeon that crapped on me. Oh, it's good luck. Someone always says, no, it is not. It is not good luck. It's so gross. You sit there. It reminds me a little bit of when you're walking in the summertime in New York and, and there's, you know, the, the air conditioning. There's all these external air conditioning units that will stick out from windows and the water will drip off of them. And sometimes, I don't know how this happens, but it, I'm sure it's happened to you, Mark. It definitely, I, I remember it happening to me. You'll get one of those big drops off of like a rusty old air conditioner that goes right in your eye. And then you're just like, what What weird, you know, 
Freon and bacteria and like viruses and mold just planted itself right in my eyeball. Yeah, COVID-19 is nothing compared to some of the liquids you experience in New York City. Nothing compared to some of the stuff that you deal. I'll never remember. I used to I used to be a kid. You know, I thought it was cool. This was kind of cool when I was in college. People would walk around wearing like flip flops with uh, with like jeans or whatever. You step in a couple of New York City street puddles and the kind of puddles where there's a weird, viscous, rainbowy thing above the murky brown sort of, you know, toxic waste looking sludge. You step in one or two of those puddles with a flip-flop on, you're done. You're never doing that again. I don't know how any human being walks around any city in flip-flops. The disgusting stuff that's all around. Yeah, flip-flops are for showers and the beach and, you know, places like that. That's what flip-flops are for. You know, maybe walking down to your lobby to get the morning paper or something. But it's not for outdoor, outdoor. I see people do this. Uh, Southern frat fraternity kids love to do this thing where they wear the flip flops with like dress pants or a seersucker even. Maybe out in your beautiful bucolic college campus on the on the grass or whatever. That's that's one thing. But you step into an urban environment. Ringworm friends. I'm just telling you, it's all over the place. Got to keep those. Got to keep your feet clean. One thing, you know, I always talk about comfortable shoes. Got to take care of your feet. Two things. If you learn nothing else, team, from this show. Two things that the older I get, the more I realize. And older people have been telling me this for a long time. And I go, oh, I don't care. Two things. Take care of your feet. Take care of your teeth. Enormously important down the line. You want to take the best care of your teeth you can and take the best care of your feet you can. And step one on feet is comfortable shoes. I'm just saying, comfortable shoes. Whatever they are. I, I don't care if you look like you're walking around with clown shoes on. They make your feet feel good. Wear your clown shoes. See, Producer Mark, I'm a utilitarian. I'll have to get a pair of clown shoes. Yeah, just don't get a clown nose because then people would think we're doing a different kind of show. All right, I've, I've, uh, I have not given enough time to our friends in Roll Call today. We'll make sure we get deeper into it tomorrow. And, and so with that, I, I do want to get to it. And remember, BuckSexton.com, I'll have an editorial up there uh, tomorrow, in fact, is the plan. And you will also post podcast stuff, social media stuff. Your one-stop shop for all things Buck Sexton is BuckSexton.com. So we want to make that happen. And now we get to the roll call. Brandy writes in, Hey, Buck and Mark. King Inslee has declared we cannot have people in our homes who don't live with us. I can't believe these new regulations. My husband wants to move out of the state. I'm worried it wouldn't be much better than anywhere else. I know your family is still planning on celebrating Thanksgiving together, Christmas as well. Ugh, I appreciate you and your views. It helps give me clarity. Brandy, like I said, if somebody feels like they might be a little bit sick or something, you know, we're not going to risk somebody who's symptomatic with COVID being near my parents and or, or anyone in my family. We got a, I got a new nephew, a little baby. Uh, and, you know, but th- that's where we draw the line, right? I mean, if everyone feels healthy, we're, we're not going to live our lives in a closet and not see each other until there's a vaccine that who even knows how long the distribution is going to take on this thing. So, yeah, uh, I'm sorry. I, I know about the uh, totalitarian impulse of Inslee. It's not not a surprise to me at all. And I just I just wish these crazy libs would back off, but they're not going to. Uh, that much that much I think we know for sure. They They're going to double down, as I've been telling you. Remember, I started saying it, I think right around late July into August, I said, you know, I've realized here 
they're not going to open things up uh, after if Biden wins. And I know let's just assume that it's a win for now. I know we're still fighting this out, but you know what I mean? They think it's a win for sure. They're not opening things up. No, they're locking you down even more. They like this power. You think they want to give up all this authority, all this delicious, wondrous ability to dictate to you? You think they want to let that go? Oh, I don't think so, friends. They're liking it. Uh, Matthew. Oh, but that said, Brandy, keep the faith. And at least if you're in Washington state, you have the beautiful coast there. I think the Pacific Northwest is one of the one of the uh, underappreciated um, gems in terms of geography and the the landscape. There's something really beautiful about the coastline up there. Uh, all right, Matthew. Hey, Buck, I find your argument for conservatives building unsinkable aircraft carriers or free speech to be highly thought provoking. Recently in the news, I saw that CNN will be up for sale. If Trump doesn't win re-election, he should buy CNN and completely reform it. Imagine if in 2024 he campaigns on his stellar presidential record and the fact that he reformed fake news. I find the thought of Trump buying CNN highly satisfying. What are your thoughts? P.S. Love the Dracula podcast. Keep up the good work. Shields high. Uh, Matthew. Um, that, that would be fun. I don't think Trump is going to buy CNN. I think that there would be people who would block a sale, even if Trump wanted to do that, uh, of CNN. Imagine if they bought it and we started calling it the conservative news network. Wouldn't that be amazing? Wouldn't that be great? Just do a total house cleaning. Get rid of all those journals. They'd all find jobs at PBS and ABC and NBC, and they'd all be fine. You know, they'd all, they'd all, you know, maybe they wouldn't be making the absurd salaries that some of them do uh, because it's really about creating the, it's like a patronage network for connected liberals, right? You go there, whether you're a contributor or a host, they pay you whatever the legacy media institution bosses say you should, get, you know, say that you should get paid. That's your salary there. It's really not linked to any specific because the entity itself is what's bringing in the money. The CNN brand, everyone there is entirely replaceable. Right. So it's just what does Zucker think of you, which is why he has so much sway over what people there say and their career. You know, if you're if you're a CNN employee, whatever Jeff Zucker decides about you and your future and, and your income, that is what it is at least while you're at CNN. Uh, and I'm glad you like the Dracula podcast, Matthew. We got some really good response on that. So there will be now more Shields High podcasts. We're actually working on getting some advertisers lined up for them because we're going to do at least a series of six, if not eight. And we're going to hopefully release them uh, by the end of this year or early in 2021 in January. That's the uh, schedule for it right now. Charlie. Hey, Buck. Love the show. You've got a great perspective. I just have to question your thoughts about the election. You seem to think that we'll accept election results if, in fact, they show Joe Biden winning. Do you truly believe that all the weird anomalies that happened November 4th show anything other than fraud? The statistical data is literally not adding up to a Biden win in many ways. How will we ever accept this win? And what is your take on the conservative people's response to it? Shields high. Charlie, when I say accept it, that's not to say that I agree with it or that I don't think that there may still have been fraud and irregularities based on exactly what you're talking about. But I would ask you, well, what what really is the alternative? I mean, if if we go through the process and the process, imperfect as it may be, does end up spitting out at the end that Joe Biden is ahead in the Electoral College and has the 270 required. Right. Right. We respect law and order. We respect the system. He's then the president and we move forward. That's how it happens. I don't see an alternative. I don't see any other way. Um, and when you start thinking about what the alternatives are, I think you go down a very dangerous path very quickly. 
So no, we we will we will accept the outcome of the process. That's not to say we will agree with it or refrain from believing that the process may have been tainted. But that's all we have for this is the process. There's no way around it. So I, I think that's the best way I can answer your question, Charlie. And thank you so much for writing in. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. All right, we got more roll call. Daniel writes in, hey, Buck and producer Mark, love the show. I listen on radio, KFAB Omaha podcast, and lately I've been watching the first as well. Well, thanks so much, uh, folks. You can always watch me on demand on the first. Just download the first TV app. Look for the Buck Sexton show. We're putting out a show every day. If you want to watch the TV show of Buck Sexton, which I hope you do. And as for uh, KFAB Omaha, a great heritage radio station that I'm so appreciative. You know, they they put me on early in my radio career and have stayed with me. And we've built such a a fantastic, uh, loyal and, and large audience there. Uh, so big thanks to the folks of KFAB Omaha for keeping us uh, keeping us early on and straight through on their uh, on their list there uh, on their rundown. Uh, he writes also, I've been wanting to tell you for a while now how impressed I am with your call to wartime conservatism. It reminds me of William Wallace and Braveheart when he tells Robert the Bruce, if we join, we can win. And if we win, we'll have something we've never had before a country of our own. Keep up the great work. Shields high. Well, Daniel, as you know, Braveheart is my favorite movie. So any comparison of any kind between the work that I do and some of the great lines in the movie Braveheart makes me smile ear to ear. So thank you so much for that. And yeah, for anyone who has not seen Braveheart, I mean, come on. You've seen it, right, Producer Mark? Of course. I'm sure I've asked you that A long time ago, but. Yeah, yeah. Okay. I'm just, you just, you only have to see it once. I'm not, you know, I'm not, not that crazy, but you got to see it. Rick writes, Buck, you had me laughing with your Obama impersonation today. Good stuff. Keep up the good work. And shields high. Thank you, Rick. I don't even remember doing the Obama impersonation. I think it just sort of comes out of me sometimes. We used to do it a lot back in the day when he was president. I'm going to have to really work on a a little bit more of a, of a Joe Biden impersonation. I think I kind of got it. It's like a, you know, it's an old guy who kind of yells, has some fallback slogans and phrases that he uses. So we'll get there. You need a Kamala. Kamala's not easy. There's not, I don't see an impersonation of her. I don't know. I've, I agree with you that that would be good, but I don't, you know, I don't know. I'd have to really work on it. I've, I, I'll tell you this. I've never heard a good impersonation of Kamala Harris, so that makes me think it'd be a difficult one to do. You know what I mean? I mean, I know you hate SNL, but Maya Rudolph, just because she looks a lot like Kamala, does do a pretty good one. There are some talented people on SNL. I mean, I, I do give credit where it's due. Um, but I've she never was part seen. of the pre woke SNL, and now she's back to play Kamala. I love SNL in the, and they were all libs then too, but they weren't annoying about it. SNL in the Mike Myers, Dana Carvey, Chris Farley era, uh, with you know Phil Hartman, R.I.P., and uh, you know a whole bunch. I mean, that was great. It was it was great, even when it wasn't that funny. It was all in a spirit of fun and comedy. And it was worth watching. You know, I, I in those years, the early 2000s, SNL, late 90s, early 2000s, I thought it was really fantastic. All right, that's going to be it. We'll get to more roll call tomorrow, friends. Be sure to check out BuckSexton.com. Shields high.